You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now we will unveil that gallant lady. Thank you and God bless you all. Nancy. The thing about this episode is, you may not want to listen to it. I mean, you do, and you are, and I thank you for it, and all of that. But for many of you, you don't need to. You already know Reagan, and you know what you think of him. You may love him, you may despise him, you may laugh at him at his age, at the silly thing he said about, we're bombing Russia now in 10 minutes. Or you may want him on Mount Rushmore. But for so many, the point is you already have a feeling. That's true at Reagan. That's not true of everything that I talk about that's made this series both challenging, but also more interesting. If you do like him, it's probably about toughness, about telling people where to go, standing up to evil. And you're probably measuring Reagan up against other leaders. And saying, no dice. Not even close. If you hate him, I'd guess it's about AIDS. It's about budget cuts to the poor or education. But all of this, all of this perception and feeling is exactly the point of a dozen Ronald Reagans. That is the series that I began in January 2016 and end now. was polished and Lady Liberty resplendent in the background as the president spoke Nancy by his side the wind was blowing just a perfect light on the statue in the background as the president thanked his French guests and the nation of France for contributing the gift of the Statue of Liberty the Americans were reminded that Miss Liberty like the many millions she's welcomed to these shores is a foreign birth the gift of workers, farmers, and shopkeepers, and children who donated hundreds of thousands of francs to send her here. They were the ordinary people of France. This statue came from their pockets and from their hearts. It was 1986 at the centennial of the Statue of Liberty. It was a very Reagan-esque, a very 80s 
moment. That common trend he saw that binds us. Call it mysticism, if you will. I have always believed there was some divine providence that placed this great land here between the two great oceans to be found by a special kind of people from every corner of the world who had a special love for freedom and a special courage that enabled them to leave their own land, leave their friends and their country, and come to this new strange land. When the president donned medals on a group of people, Henry Kissinger, born in Germany, Bob Hope, born in Great Britain, the architect, Ayam Pei, who was born in China, Yitzhak Perlman, born in Israel, and R. Chang Diaz, a space shuttle astronaut, born in Costa Rica. It was a celebration of immigrants, and the president betrayed a linkage of that to celebrating America. Long before it would be established, he called for a North American trade accord. It should also be pointed out that in his diary and in other statements, he called for finally getting tough on borders. It should also be seen that in the Cold War, the issue of immigration looked different too. There was pressure to show America as different from the Soviet Union, a country that had been closed off to the world. Yet, it cannot be separated so easily. In Reagan's mind, America was a beacon, and that that is the case is reinforced by what he chose to talk about in his farewell address. A small story about a big ship and a refugee and a sailor. It was back in the early 80s at the height of the boat people, and the sailor was hard at work on the carrier Midway, which was patrolling the South China Sea. The sailor, like most American servicemen, was young, smart, and fiercely observant. The crew spied on the horizon a leaky little boat, and crammed inside were refugees from Indochina, hoping to get to America. The Midway sent a small launch to bring them to the ship in safety. As the refugees made their way through the choppy seas, one spied the sailor on deck and stood up and called out to him. He yelled, Hello, American sailor. Hello, freedom man. A small moment with a big meeting. A moment the sailor, who wrote it in a letter, couldn't get out of his mind. And when I saw it, neither could I. Because that's what it has to... It was to be an American in the 1980s. We stood again for freedom. I know we always have, but in the past few years, the world, again, and in a way we ourselves, rediscovered it. What's also significant about the farewell address is that one of the great achievements that he felt was a resurgence in national pride that he felt hadn't been there. And it's easy to scoff at that. You might say... Why? How could pride be an achievement? How could a, a patriotism really be an achievement for a president? You may not like patriotism because it can bring bad things. It elevates the U.S. over other countries, countries that we may care about. It makes us look like a bully. But it's worthwhile knowing that he clarified that an informed patriotism is what he was looking for. One, he says, grounded in thoughtfulness and knowledge, one that you're actually thinking about, not just emotion. A teaching of what America is and how America is freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. Freedom is special, he says, and freedom needs protection. Now, it might be crazy to think, uh, see, we had a Reagan. 
So you had someone in that spot. And because you had someone in that spot, the spot changes, the office changes, what the president can do changes. And it's hard to see sometimes that maybe it started with Johnson, maybe it started with Nixon. There wasn't a lot of hope in the presidency and Reagan created an archetype that other presidents stand. You know, when, when Bill Clinton would stand up and talk about American promise or, or when Obama would talk about hope, I think it's key to remember that they're standing on ground that wasn't just there. It was something made. And the architect of that was Reagan. A businessman who just down at the entrance of his building, there was an elderly lady selling pretzels. And every day he'd go by and he'd put a quarter down and never take a pretzel, go on in. He was being very charitable. And this went on for some time. And he came along one day, put down his quarter, started, and she took him by the arm. And he looked at her and he said, well, you probably want to know why for this full year I've been leaving 25 cents on the plate and not taking a pretzel. And she said, no, I just wanted to tell you that pretzels are 35 cents now. Someone that spoke optimistically is a model for presidents who choose to, to grab. And we'll talk more about that later. This series was never a biography. It's not even a study of Reagan's presidency, though it functions as a decent biography or decent study of Reagan's presidency. The important thing about history is the present. That's the whole basis of my podcast. And we don't just look at abstract objects on this show, but at current perceptions too and current politics current feeling and so the doesn't ronald reagan's is not just about a reagan truth or reality that existed in the past though we try to bring that up and use it as much as we can it's also about the perceptions the multiple perceptions of reagan that exist now we went through 11 episodes and i'll briefly summarize them all right one the assassination attempt fueling a first year legislative sweep and a little trouble on social security that binder-bearing, spectacle-clad whiz kid, David Stockman, forgotten to history in his concept of a budget-cutting Reaganomics that didn't really happen. Because in episode two, we talked about a recession, tax increases, and the fall of that whiz kid. Episode three, Rubik's Cube, we look into two puzzles. How Reagan went from being a Truman Democrat to Mr. Republican, the essence of what the GOP is at times, and how the economy was under Reagan. Episode four, about the abyss of Central America. Five, the GOP convention against Gerald Ford. And that was a fun episode to do. That was a riveting, exciting episode. And I just there wanted to point out, I'm very thankful to the historian Rick Perlstein for listening to that episode and giving me his uh, critique of it on Twitter. Um, he liked it. He's a, he's a believer that Reagan's speech at the end of the convention was indeed orchestrated between the Reagan and Ford people. So I want to point that out. That was episode five. I really enjoyed doing it. Episode six, about homelessness and AIDS. Seven, about tax reform, immigration reform, and savings and loans. Episode eight, about Iran-Contra. Ouch. I thought when I did episode 8 that I was going to end there and maybe do, well, episode 9 and then end with a conclusion 10, right? And not actually do a dozen Ronald Reagan's, a dozen episodes. But 
we had an election and a new president, and everyone said at the time that the world had never changed like this before. They might not be completely wrong, but I thought they were a little bit exaggerating, so I did one called Episode 9, Shockwave, which really compared the 1981 moment of this new president on the scene with these new cabinet officers and what was going on in early 2017. Then episode 10, the Cold War in the first term, pre-Gorbachev, how Reagan's moves worked and what happened. And episode 11, the Cold War, second term with Gorbachev. And here we are at 12. Now, if you didn't listen to all of these episodes, you should. Now, any one of the episodes you can listen, including this one, you know, they're not reliant on the narrative, all right? But I, I think you should. And it's on the feed for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you're not subscribed, go on iTunes or CastBox, whatever you're using, and subscribe to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. All right? All of the episodes are in that feed. We're also going to put it up as its own podcast eventually. I'm announcing that now. A dozen Ronald Reagans. So it will be there for people. I started with an original concept that there are about 12 Ronald Reagans. And, you know, there's probably more, but that mix is really who Reagan was, a historical Reagan, and also Reagan in our politics and perceptions. As he was falling, grabbed a limb sticking out the side of the cliff and looked down 300 feet to the canyon floor below and then looked up and said, Lord, if there's anyone up there, give me faith. Tell me what to do. And a voice from the heavens said, if you have faith, let go. He looked down at the canyon floor and then took another look up and says, is there anyone else up there? Reagan's sometimes treated as a kind of non-person, non-entity. And this was definitely true at the time. A lot of the accounts of Reagan was always in the 80s about how, oh, other people are controlling him. Oh, he's a puppet. Oh, he doesn't really do anything. He falls asleep at the meetings and other people run the show. And if you ask me, what was the biggest revelation from doing the dozen Ronald Reagans? And it didn't take long. You know, it kind of like, boom, first round of research. That is just not true. There is absolutely no basis for that. What I came out of a dozen Ronald Reagans with is a different Reagan than the one that I knew. And quite frankly, the one that I grew up with. Uh, I talked about it earlier, about his reading and listening. So uncommon among many politicians who were rewarded for their talking. Dick Tewitness. It's an admirable leadership quality. It meant people could rely on him. But there's a flexibility. I've cited Michael Deaver's book, A Different Drummer, so many times, and I think that it really was, and it's not the way people think about him. It's the exact opposite, that he was some kind of like remote-controlled puppet or something, but really was a different drummer, and I think it's an example that's needed today in terms of you be you in politics. Let's see something different, and don't always try to fit into a rigid ideology or model. People crave that reliability. George, you and I seem to be pretty lonely here. So said Reagan to George Shultz in a meeting about what to do with Panamanian strongman Manuel Noriega. This deal is better than going in and counting our dead. I am in the Los Angeles. 
What had happened is, in 1988, this is Reagan's last year, the Justice Department indicts Noriega on drug trafficking and racketeering laws. The Senate holds hearings, widely publicized in Panama, in which a former advisor to Noriega accused him of a wide range of crimes. This is what George Schultz writes in his memoir. You can't buy him. You can only rent him, I always said. But attitudes in the U.S. government towards Noriega were mixed. See, he was helping out the U.S. on drugs and also being a bit of a barrier between any communism in Panama. Yet the State Department in general viewed Noriega as a menace, powerful and not remotely trustworthy. There's a sentiment in Panama against Noriega. General strike takes place. People filling the streets. Uh, Panamanians assume that the United States meant business. They could express themselves. Noriega is even fired as head of the P- Panama Defense Force. He was technically not president, but the president fires him. Benedict Arnold. He is a Benedict Arnold. He is being used now for the political group in the U.S. against Panama to give the seal of approval to the accusations against us. So there's negotiations. Uh, attempted coup fails in March of 88. He gets power back. Noriega's government imposes a state of urgency, suspending constitutional and political liberties in the country. Armed guards storming an opposition meeting. It was supposed to be a democracy. He stays in power. The U.S. puts in economic sanctions. They send down a negotiator, however, at the same time, Mike Kozak. Kozak says Noriega was preoccupied with the narcotics indictment and that the economic sanctions were working better than we had expected. Schultz and President Reagan believe that if they use this indictment as leverage, but that means they're going to have to give up the indictment, they can get Noriega out of power and someone else in. The trouble is it's 1988. There's an election going on. People know that Vice President Bush is probably going to be the successor, and Bush and his friend, Treasury Secretary Jim Baker, are very much against any deal. It's not difficult to see why. He became a key ally in the Reagan-Bush administration's secret war in Nicaragua. Today, the charge is that the U.S. administration turned a blind eye to Noriega's drug profiteering in return for his help in the war against communism. They're getting attacked. One of the Michael Dukakis is out there on the campaign trail. So is Jesse Jackson at this point in 88 saying, you know, how can you tell people like not to do drugs, but then support a drug dealer? So it's a bad political issue. Despite that, Reagan wants Kozak to go to Noriega and work out a deal, despite all this, the politics and how it looks. And they work out a deal that they would lift sanctions and work through Japan to put $67 million in the Panama National Bank. It's not for Noriega. It's not a payoff. That would give him the face-saving to be able to withdraw with dignity, that and lifting the indictment, and then he'd leave Panama. Bush and Baker want the president to stop negotiation. Ed Meese and Jim Baker tell Reagan if they go through with this Noriega arrangement, it's going to be as bad as Iran-gate. Schultz is opposed. If the fearful kill this deal, because it's not tough enough, it doesn't look tough enough, it looks like we're dealing with a drug dealer, then we'll have to support tougher measures like go in and get them. In May of 1988, there's a meeting, and Schultz describes what went on. Chief of Staff Baker. This is Howard Baker, I know. He had two Bakers who were Chief of Staff. This is the, the later Chief of Staff, Howard Baker. This is the worst political situation I can think of. 
I don't know if the madness of our friends will spill over. I don't know what effect it'll have on the trade bill and INF. See, Baker's panicking here. This is going to start to lead to other legislation. This Noriega deal is so unpopular. But that's based on the fact, Reagan says, that no one has told the people of this country the indictment isn't worth the paper it's printed on. What of the political fallout when Noriega stays there after all these months of trying to get rid of him? I hope we can do better than that, Mr. President, but it's best to stop the fire from spreading to other things. Howard, none of you seem to agree with me. You're just leaving the SOB there to do what he's doing. Attorney General Meese, we can do all the things that Schultz suggested before. Secretary Schultz, our chances now are worse than they were two or three months ago when I suggested those options. Uh, Under this agreement, Noriega pays a heavy price because he's out of power. Duberstein, who's acting as liaison, congressional liaison. I have not been able to recruit one ally on the Hill in our contacts here. It's really due to the hysteria in the country now on drugs, even if there's no alternative way of dealing with Noriega. But who created the hysteria? Those same people on the Hill and in the press. I'm as mad at the U.S. attorney down there as I am at Noriega. That indictment doesn't mean a thing, as long as Noriega is not in the jurisdiction of the U.S. There is no alternative to this deal except troops. Now, what danger is there if you go down and say, what we want to do is put on hold due to the summit? The negotiator Kozak says, the danger is that we've been trying to keep down the leftist forces and keep Noriega under control. The leftists keep creating provocations, and then he and his guys back them off. Chief of Staff Baker, isn't it better to wait but not tell Noriega why? In eight years as governor, and almost eight years as president now, I've always said I would never make a decision just based on the political ramifications. That's what I'm being asked to do today. If the people know the facts, as Thomas Jefferson always said, but this disgraceful media telling people that we are giving in to a drug merchant, it's not giving in to use the indictment to get rid of him. And Attorney General Meese, and there are more indictments possible, there are more that are being worked on, and what to do with them, Ed? When we started all of this, we all said that our policy is the removal of Noriega, getting him out of Panama. That's still our goal. It doesn't sound like it. We've got a fixed departure here in this agreement. But we would be giving him the same deal that Colombia is not giving the cartel, despite the incredible risks they face. We can't be perceived as giving in. But this drug dealer is a military leader with total control of the country. There are things that we can do. For example, we can go to 100% searches of Panamanians coming in. We can tighten up. That would just annoy a lot of innocent people. And Secretary Jim Baker goes on the attack. Mr. President, what would Nancy be able to say when she addresses children about drugs? Secretary Schultz blocks. She can say we extracted a heavy price from this man. He had to resign. Meese chimes in. But we have left him with all his assets, and he gets no punishment and keeps the money. There's no drug dealer we have ever indicted who, would, who wouldn't agree to that deal. How can you say this is no punishment? He's an absolute dictator with life and death power, and he uses it. And now instead, he has to go out there and become a tourist. Jim Baker. I agree with Ed that any indicted drug dealer would accept this deal. 
But we can't do anything about that indictment. It's useless as long as he's in Panama. Mr. President, me says, I can't stress how strongly the law enforcement view is here. All the law enforcement people I know strongly oppose this. Mr. President, for the first time in 20 years, you'll be doing something which the law enforcement community is strongly opposed to. You've just lowered my respect for the people in the law enforcement field. How is it better to leave him in charge? Let me use this simile, Mr. President. We don't give in to the demands of a criminal, even if he's holding hostages. So we can't agree to the demands of a dictator, even if he holds the country hostage. Even you would not be able to explain this to the American people. None of you has shaken me up a bit as to the rightness and wrongness of this. But should we go back and put it on hold? Tell him we're not ready with what's going on here? That puts Kozak in a tough spot. Tells him we're a bunch of jerks who can't make up our minds. Secretary Baker. Continue to maintain that he's got to go, and if he, he acts, we've got a different situation and can react. What you guys are settling for is, is that we have to go in there with considerable loss of life. And how does that look to the rest of Latin America? Finally, after the meeting and the continues, President Reagan is, is adamant. He asks, what if you had this opportunity with Hitler to get him out? before he did all that he did. I hate the way I feel here, being so damn stubborn. We thought from the beginning of this negotiation that the indictment was trading material. I can't just walk away from this. William Webster, now the CIA director after Casey's... We've dropped spy indictments and prisoner exchanges. He'll be scot-free down there, waving his machete around. In the end, Schultz said, President Reagan could not be budged. He was deeply convinced that he had negotiated, that what he had negotiated was the only way to try to solve the problem. It's a kind of obscure story in the last year of his presidency, but it does show you he's in a different direction from almost all of his advisors, from the GOP, from any of the Democrats in this case, uh, from his own vice president who was going to be his party's standard bearer. Story makes clear. Even with extremely negative politics for him, that is, the leader of the war on drugs and the just say no, doing a deal with the drug leader. That's how he's going to be exposed in the media. That's how Democrats on the campaign trail were going to say it. But the other alternative was sending troops into a country, both with potential for loss of life and for extremely bad relations in Latin America. Reagan wouldn't do it. Schultz writes, Ronald Reagan had gone through a tense fight with his closest advisors and political associates. He was virtually isolated. He was also impressively sensible, clear in his mind, and decisive. He stood his ground when almost everyone opposed him, even threatened him by suggesting a parallel to the Iran-Contra affair. He saw the immediate political difficulties, but he refused to make a decision based on the politics involved. He was ready to fight flat out to convince the American people to support him in what would be recorded as the right course for the United States. He was, I thought, genuinely presidential. I admired and respected his strength under fire. So let's do justice to the original concept, though much time has passed and I almost lost track of it. A dozen Ronald Reagans. There were probably hundreds, but I thought that there were 12 relevant ones. The conservative, the moderate, sometimes liberal lever. I'll explain that. 
tax cutter, tax raiser, the distant delegator, but yet the deep thinker, the politician, cold warrior, yet the peacemaker and compromiser. Let's start with Reagan the conservative. This is where Reagan placed himself politically, and most still place him. Reagan anchors. He creates a right wing that was smallish in the 1950s, grew with the Goldwater campaign where Reagan made his mark as the most effective Goldwater spokesperson. Then in 1976, takes on a moderate, Gerald Ford, in the convention with the support of people like Phyllis Shafley and Jesse Helms. And everything coming out of that convention is ultra-conservative for its time and some really even today. He advocated tax cuts, continued some Nixon ideas like block grants, but did them more forcefully. He got them done. He got them through Congress. Most of the members of the current House of Representatives would easily consider Reagan the conservative icon. Now, I'm aware that so many listeners that are true blue conservatives, libertarians especially, are going to recoil. He wasn't a real conservative. I think the thing you have to understand is, yeah, they said that that time in many quarters. Jim Baker talks about it all the time, that there was this let Reagan be Reagan crowd during his presidency that thought like Reagan was really a conservative, but they, the, there was this country club staff around him. That's what Howard Phillips would say. There's country club staff around him that, that's not letting him get anything done. He's being controlled. Well, that wasn't true. Clymer Wright, who was one of Reagan's original conservative supporters, and Jim Baker talks about how when he was chief of staff, Clymer Wright was writing letters to Reagan like, you know, you're letting this guy Baker control you and you're being sabotaged. Reagan wrote him back. He said, yes, I'm being sabotaged, Clymer, by the people that write letters like this and articles to the paper. I'm in charge. And my people are helping me to carry out the policies I set. No, we don't get everything. Yes, we have to compromise. But if we compromise to get 75 to 80 percent, it's more than worth it. Well, not everyone feels that way. And if you're on the extreme of politics, you really want to amp up that compromise level to 90. uh, You know, you want to get 95 percent or I think in a lot of cases in current politics, 100 percent. You know, bipartisanship is not what it was uh, probably in the 1980s. Here's what George Shultz says. Reagan as president was a Republican, a conservative, a man of the right. But this will mislead historians who don't see beyond them. You could not figure him out like a fact. He was, though, a very good negotiator. And I think that's something that comes through you know, again and again, even people that are critics of him. I mean, as Gorbachev referenced in the Reykjavik meeting, uh, he knew from his intelligence that Reagan was not fond of making concessions. And he found that out during that meeting. The story of Bitburg which was almost seems ridiculous to all of us, but it's, it's just, and I think by any objective measure, he should have changed the site and not gone to Bitburg once it was revealed that there were Nazi graves there. So sometimes the stubbornness is bad. One area that's evident before he even gets to the presidency, it's not something people talk about a lot, but is Reagan's terms as governor of California. And it's key to remember that both in his presidency and in his terms as governor of California, he had to work with Democratic 
Congresses. He had, during his presidency, the entire eight years, Democrats controlled the House. First under Tip O'Neill, and then Jim Wright, who was even a little bit more hostile to the Reagan administration. The Senate, they controlled, the Republicans controlled for six years, then lost it in Reagan's last two, which definitely kind of pushed changes on there. He had conservative politics, but they were his. You know, as Michael Deaver writes in A Different Drummer, Reagan didn't care what people thought of him. He's not a person that walked in the shell of what Heidegger might call the they self. Wondering to himself, am I conservative enough or people are going, I mean, practical political considerations were there, but not deep emotional ones. Like anybody did a little of it, but he did it far less than anybody. He was active. He wanted to do things, not just sit there and have a political position. He was thought there. He was a deep thinker. He thought, he listened, he read a lot. This is counter to the image that he had at the time. He would recite things that he had remembered from a long time ago. He would ask questions. Deaver talks about how every plane flight, there were, you know, cases of books and and things like that. Here's what his friend and um, Air Force Secretary Thomas Reed says. No one would accuse Reagan of being an intellectual. Discussing issues with Reagan was an oxymoron. He had developed a few beliefs, and they worked for him. David Priest's The President's Book of Secrets, and Priest is a listener, and he's also been on this program talking about the PDB that the president's, including Reagan, and as far as we know, Donald Trump, get every day. He would read them digest them. Uh, There was a CIA historian who did a study of Reagan's own copy of the PDB, which is preserved, and there were notes on either side on many of the pages. You know, if uh, the Russians had developed a new technology, he might add a note like breakthrough, you know, just showing that he was comprehending. It was even more detailed than that. He sometimes corrected typos, you know, in the document. That was the level that he was reading at. He would also ask questions and ask for more detail. Sometimes he would make points. He would rewrite things to make the point better than the CIA briefer had. He was disciplined about reading and listening, and therefore, when he spoke, it showed. One of the things in his farewell address that he says is that, you know, everyone calls me the great communicator, but I'm communicating great things. Contrast that today with politicians who, and even then, to be quite honest, politicians who come, many from the legal profession, which Reagan did not, and there's a lot of talking. There seems to be a currency in how much uh, talking you do, and that's, you know, uh, I'm one to talk being a podcaster here, but reading about Reagan and and learning more about uh, his example, that's one thing that I think positive that could be drawn from a leader. Maybe. Listen a little bit. (laughs) You have a right to make your choice based on what it is we actually propose. And I'm not going to take any more time now. I've been making speeches for several months now. And I think that in this context, I could start talking about the issues and perhaps miss something that's of great concern to you or something that you've been told and you'd rather have more information about. So why don't we just get right to that question and answer situation? It led to the formation, I believe, of bedrock politics that couldn't be shaken by, you know, quick conversations. He wasn't one of these people who believed what the last person had told him. And 
I think this deep thinking led to a kind of idealism. He had big ideas and deep concepts that he wanted, with details being less important. Several friends remark that it really was the actor, big movie star job, that he modeled things after. So he would perform his part magnificently and be in control of that, leaving it to others. Here's what Thomas Reed said. We believe Reagan envisioned Holmes Tuttle. This was the car dealer millionaire that financed Reagan's early gubernatorial campaign. We envisioned, uh, we believe that Reagan envisioned Holmes Tuttle as the producer, kind of the Walt Disney of his life, the man providing the money and making difficult decisions where needed. Stuart Spencer, the campaign aide in California, was the movie director. And for a while, Thomas Reed says, I was his studio chief, the Jack Warner, hiring the extras, putting out fires. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When protected by his Sacramento studio staff, i.e. the California people, Reagan did well. When captured by outside groups, trouble often followed. That's what Reed says. And it fits pretty well. And you have Don Regan saying, oh, the presidency was a ghost ship. A less cynical James Baker saying, you know, Reagan's knack for improvisation and relying on speaking to get his way out of trouble you know, it's a big burden for somebody who's in the staff position, and it's one of the reasons he left to become Treasury Secretary. Reagan never thought much about staff, wrote his biographer, Lou Cannon. And Thomas Reed says, Reagan was not a good manager of people. He was a horrible judge of talent. And that's a friend writing that. And I think it's always important to remember, because Iran-Contra has seeded a bit from memory. You know, again, we're talking about history and, and the perception. History as, as, as the present. And if you're in the present, there's a little cloud over Iran-Contra. Like, it's pretty far away now. But more than that, that Reagan had Meese, that's his attorney general, Poindexter, Bud McFarlane, Lynn Nofsinger, uh Richard Secord, Oliver North, and even his trusted aide from the beginning, who we've quoted many times on this show. Mike Deaver, all from his administration, Raymond Donovan, his labor secretary, all from his administration that would end up in criminal trouble. Iran-Contra almost cost his presidency and severely limited what would have been otherwise probably an incredible presidential story with nothing bad to tell about him. I mean, mean, a member of his own uh, Justice Department for several years, Terry Eastland, said that Reagan's just didn't get the new ethics in Washington that had happened as a result of Watergate. And we're constantly running up against trouble. Iran-Contra was so prominent in news commentary from its discovery to the 1990s. Now it's blurred a bit. It's easy to forget that it's Reagan's age, popularity, the fact that Congress, particularly the Senate, didn't really want to take down Reagan, that they had their eye on the 88 elections and thought they might win. Reagan was only going to be in office a couple more years. The investigation was short. It was limited. There were negotiations going on with the Soviets and Democrats in Congress wanted it and knew about it. And so it was kind of a layoff investigation. Seymour Hersh, his article, we we talked about that, that came out years later, revealed that. 
but he was constantly saved by his age. You know, even Lawrence Walsh writes that the president's age was a factor. They did. They do have him testifying uh, after his presidency. And, you know, he makes the joke. Let's not make a federal case out of this. You know, an email from Poindexter to North saying the president knows very little of your operations may have saved him. But Democrats really had very little appetite for impeachment in 87. And we should remember that Reagan's role in the Contra side of Iran-Contra is the thing that he was not held responsible for, the transfer of the money. The Iran side, he was part of, he approved, and he admitted. He admitted it on television. It was shocking at the time because Reagan was dealing with Iran, a terrorist-supporting country. Well, he wanted hostages home. It didn't work. And in the secrecy, he gave an excuse for others to do other things by approving at least one side of the operation, as far as we know. We'll never know, truthfully, about the other side. You shouldn't just gloss over that criticism because the way that things worked out, you had this presidency that has some big achievements, particularly uh, ending the Cold War, improvement in the economy, at least by the way people measure things, whether or not that's all him. But you can gloss over what happened with Iran-Contra and just this delegating because it means that there might have been a certain degree of luck to what happened. And I note that so many times it's good staff that are responsible for events during the presidency. That's just one of these hypotheticals. Okay, things work out. But let's say there was no Schultz. Let's say there was no Jim Baker. Well, we found out when Don Regan became chief of staff how bad it can be when a different person's staff, uh, a different person is chief of staff. Reagan says in his own diary that one of his biggest regrets is that he did not make Jim Baker his national security advisor so he could be there, and then it got him into trouble with Iran-Contra. There's almost no one who thinks it's a good model, including his friends, that think that's a good model for a presidency. On the economy, I've covered a lot, especially in episode three, Rubik's Cube, but I think it comes down to this. Were the 80s a good time? I mean, not so much in 1982. Not when you look at the full decade. It's almost the same as the 20s in that way. Everybody thinks the 20s was great. I don't know, not in 1922. <laughs> same thing with the 80s. Not so much in 1982. It was one of the worst recessions since the Great Depression. And there's little economic gain in the 1980s that cannot be explained by two things. The lifting of burdensome inflation and related the decrease in energy prices. Here's Luke Cannon, though. It's often said that the rich got richer during the Reagan years. The real income of every strata of Americans increased during the 1980s after declining during the 1970s. 18.4 million new jobs were, using that bad verb that I don't like to use with politics, created during the Reagan administration. But, you know, you contrast that with 10 million created during Jimmy Carter's presidency. Yeah, it's not something people talk about a lot. And then you see that how little jobs really sometimes have to do with the economy. You know, unemployment was 7.7 during, on average, during his presidential years. No, no, the real issue was that oil prices came down, and so did the crippling inflation of the 1970s. Because in Jimmy Carter's presidency, those 10 million new jobs were cold comfort to people who were having to spend so much on everything. Now, Reagan did introduce some tax cuts and cut some programs. He also raised taxes. You know, one of his uh, former advisors, Bruce Bartlett, talks about how all but two years, his first year and his last year, Reagan raised taxes every year. But overall, 
he lowered more than he raised. You know, there's that quote that like saying Reagan raised taxes is like saying, you know, Michael Jordan missed a few baskets. <laughs> you know, it gives you an idea. His emphasis was on in the other direction. And Theodore White says that people felt overspent, overtaxed, overregulated. The deregulation movement, it gets started by Jimmy Carter in his presidency, one of the proponents of uh, deregulation in trucking, in airlines, is Ted Kennedy. That starts. But, you know, the deregulation is of an extreme pace in the 1980s and may have gone too far. And savings and loans is one of these things. It's another thing that's been put under the rug of history, but needs to be brought back every time that you talk about Reagan. Because while it did start in the Carter administration, it was never significantly reined in during Reagan's administration. And he had an official who was running it, someone who used to work at a savings and loan, who realized the national scale of the problem, what it was going to do, and tried to stop it. So yes. And savings and loans is important to talk about when we discuss the economy in the 1980s, because how much of it was propped up by what really was false money, false spending, where anyone could start a bank, loan out money with very little collateral at all. And there are politics involved. These banks were also giving donations and fueling companies with phony money that had to be paid for later by future administrations. Here's what William Bunch, the author of Tear Down This Myth, writes. Uh, Memories get softer, and you have to see how people saw things in the 1990s, right after his presidency. Yes, now a new President Bush was in office. But Reaganomics didn't look so good when there was a recession in 1990. People were saying this all started with Reagan. The end of his presidency, you got 55% of people saying country's going in the wrong direction. Some of the bad things that occurred, the crack epidemic, drug programs based on punishment and not treatment. His budget cuts included cuts to local law enforcement. Crime rose in cities. The prison population rose during Reagan's administration. During his farewell address, he said, I've been asked if I have any regrets. The deficit is one. There's almost universal agreement that the increased borrowing is a negative on Reagan's presidency. He admits it in the farewell address. He quickly says it that his speech wasn't a time for arguments, but in other occasions, he blamed it on Congress. The debt soared. The reason was simple. Defense spending, coupled by a lack of true desire to savagely cut discretionary spending and get into the big issues of Medicare or Social Security significantly. Popular programs with the American people that he had promised, at least on the Social Security side, not to cut. He would submit budgets that he knew full well, had no political support even in his own party. He signed final budgets that increased the deficit. And so it became, at the end of his presidency, a regret. But that presents it as an afterthought, and it wasn't. From 1981 onward, the deficit was an issue. It's not something that he discovered in 1989 as a problem. It's worthwhile addressing some of the other things I bring up in the dozen Ronald Reagans. For instance, Reagan was a good politician. It's hard to quite understand that. He won 49 states in 1984. He won California, New York, Connecticut, Illinois, Virginia, Washington, Oregon. These are all blue states now. And he did this, I think, bringing to the other point. I think best because he had this kind of everyman quality. He understood people. 
And he knew how to speak to Americans with understanding in a very effective manner. There were flops. We discussed several speech flops. 1982, when he is forced to raise taxes, but beforehand he goes and makes a speech and thinks everyone's going to run to Congress. But now, you know, there are no calls flooding Congress the way it was in 81. His Iran-Contra speech where he says, I did trade arms for hostages. Where's Reagan today? Where does he fit? I mean, you hear this is all the time, right? Reagan wouldn't fit in today's GOP party. And I don't know if I completely agree with that. He self-identified as a conservative. He was also dealing with a Democratic House the whole time. This is the same with Nixon. So you see a different presidency. We, we never got to see Reagan with a Republican House and a Republican Senate and what he would have done. I still think David Stockman's right that uh, you know there would still be a f- this idea that if he had a GOP house, there'd be tremendous uh, cuts in spending. There doesn't seem to be much evidence that it was a direction that he wanted to. You know, there's a line in his farewell address. I went into politics in part to put up my hand and say, stop. I was a citizen politician, and it seemed the right thing for a citizen to do. I think we have stopped a lot of what needed stopping. And I felt that he had gone far enough just kind of setting the direction. Richard Reeves says of him that maybe an accomplishment from a conservative point of view is that he killed or pushed back other men's dreams of mammoth education, national health care insurance, and, and other things. And that's probably true. With Reagan, you establish some limit to programs. It's very unique, to say the least. I don't think we're going to see, we haven't seen somebody exactly like him again And that may be one of the problems, is that we keep trying to model Reagan, and others do, and inferior players are trying the same act, an act that was uniquely suited, perhaps, to him and his skills. Michael Reagan, his son, and talk radio host and and commentator, um, recently had listened to him on the excellent uh, Kick-Ass Politics podcast uh, that Ben Mathis does. And one of the things that Michael Reagan says is stop trying to be my father. Everyone's trying to be him. Be yourself. Lead. And um, I think that's true because people want to use the name. Liberals do it too. You know, Reagan's often uses what I call the sometimes moderate. We cite the moderate examples. We use them as the liberal lever. That's another one of these dozen Ronald Reagan perceptions, I think, since he's so much of an acknowledged conservative icon. You know, If you catch Reagan advocating a position that's left-trending, it's an extremely powerful argument. It's a lever for which to use, and that's in our politics today. Immigration, gun control, uh, peace efforts, talking to Iran, the occasional tax raise, the occasional compromise, divorce laws, um, abortion, pulling in his uh, gubernatorial example, working together in bipartisan spirit on the issues, Tip and Ronnie, Reagan did it, is often evoked by some people who really don't have too much interest in the overall record. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk briefly about the premium podcast where my history can beat up your politics. It can be as little as $2 a month. If you like the program, you like what we're talking about, you'll want more of it. And what you can get is archives of old episodes. And in addition, you get your own extra podcast. All right, this is only available for subscribers. It can be as little as $2 a month. There's over 40 items in the library from the premium podcast plus old episodes that you get access to depending on your membership level. If you're a friend of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, that's just $2 a month, and you get 25 archived episodes, plus the feed where we're going to play some archived episodes on a regular basis and also have new episodes. For instance, uh, we finished our, we're finishing our Ronald Reagan uh, series here, and I'm going to talk about the making of that uh, in an episode coming up. Uh, to discuss some of the materials we used and sources and the reasons for doing the project, etc. So consider it. Uh, it's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Let's talk about what we must talk about, right? Comparing Reagan to Trump. If we want to talk about where's Reagan. It is early in Trump's presidency, I grant you that. I'm looking at an eight-year span of Reagan versus a one-and-a-half year of Donald Trump. And Reagan, certainly in 81 and 82, presented a little bit differently. Just doing something different and introducing a different set of politics, which is always going to be shocking for people or shocking for journalists, is not all that new. I mean, one of the reasons that I did episode nine, Shockwave, is to very much talk about how, you know, a new president saying shocking things, cabinet members that are different, you know, than before. I mean, he had James Watt as the interior secretary, and he was talking about selling lands wholesale and all of that. I mean, it was scaring people. Gene Kirkpatrick in the United Nations. She basically said the same thing that Nikki Haley just recently said, that if you don't vote for the United States, we're going to be taking names and we're going to be watching you when it comes time for foreign aid. Just in terms of a very abstract putting America first or being proud of America, that certainly is an similarity there in that Reagan was an American firster in a sense that he wanted people to be patriotic. I do think when you get into issues of tariff and trade, there's a huge contrast. Reagan was a free trader. He expanded the very trade with China. Although he's not remembered for it, he's probably the president that really opened the door. I mean, Nixon opened the diplomatic door. Reagan opened the trade door. Reagan was a person that I could look at the camera, like to make speeches. I don't think there's been a president since that really is that good with the camera. The obvious difference is personal self-control. Reagan didn't tweet. 
Now, that's not to say that I don't think uh, Reagan would have used social media. One of the things to know about Reagan, and this is, you know, different from what people might expect, is that he answered his mail. And he did that almost his entire professional life, from when he was a movie star to even a former president. So he did answer letters from average people. They would get, they would write something to him, and he would get a letter back from Reagan. You know, I don't know if he was able to answer everybody, but he certainly tried. Certainly, as governor of California, he was getting pretty close to everyone who wrote him. So, um, you know, so the idea like that he would eschew social media is is probably misguided. But again, the idea that he would tweet out every thought. No, he didn't make attacks. There was the occasional thing I should say. Tip O'Neill really got steamed once when after he felt that uh, after the bombing in Beirut that uh, he had told his Democratic Congress members to not, that this is a day that Marines died and it's not to be exploited for political purposes. And then after that, just a few weeks later, you know, Reagan had said something like, Tip likes to cut and run. O'Neill feels in his biography, he felt that Reagan was actually using him as a shield for something that he was going to do anyway, and that's pulled the Marines out of Lebanon. So, I mean, okay, there were some exceptions like that. He also engaged in a lot of abstract attacks on people, like, for example, the welfare queen's comment, which, you know, Tip O'Neill kept telling Reagan, please, we've looked into this. There is no such person that you're talking about. You know, you keep using this example, and it's making poor people look bad. He would also talk about homeless people sleeping on grates by choice and things like that. So again, there was a lot of abstract attacks on part of his rhetoric. Individual people, it's hard to find a lot of that. And that's a very big contrast with current president. I think a story might help here. This is from uh, the excellent uh, Movie Nights with the Reagans by Mark Weinberg. And thanks to Simon Schuster for sending this one my way in advance of publication, actually. And uh, this is one of the stories that Weinberg, who's a press officer in the administration, tells. Uh, On Monday, I arrived at the White House at the usual time, went to my office, and got down to work. At around 10, Jim called me on the private direct line between our offices and said, he wants to see you. I said, I'm sure he does, or something like that, because I thought Jim was scamming me. I mean, so I continued about my business. An hour or so later... Jim buzzed me up again and said in a more plaintive tone, he really does want to see you. This time I could tell he wasn't joking. So I said I would come by soon and see the president. Still, I cannot imagine what the president could possibly want to talk to me about. I mean, it was completely out of character for Ronald Reagan to summon anyone to the Oval Office like that. Nonetheless, after about 20 to 30 minutes, I put on my suit coat and walked down the hall to the area outside the Oval Office where Jim and the president's personal secretary Kathy Osborne had their desks. I told Kathy that uh, Jim said the president wanted to see me. She looked perplexed and said, he does? She got up from her desk, walked into the Oval Office, and then came back out no more than 30 seconds later. Sounding surprised, she told me that the president did indeed want to see me, and that I should go right in. So I marched into the Oval Office. President Reagan was at his desk having lunch and reading some briefing materials. I said, Mr. President, I understand you wanted to see me, sir. He looked up and said, Oh, yes, Mark. Come in, please. I approached the desk, and he said, Say, on Saturday, you had me sign some letters, and... At this point, I got a huge knot in my stomach because I was sure I had screwed up something. 
I did so with the pen that you had given me, but I did not give it back to you. He then opened the top drawer of the resolute desk used by several presidents and took out the pen I had given him to sign letters two days earlier and said, I didn't know if it was special to you for some reason or not, and I felt bad about keeping it over the weekend. I was going to call you about it, but I didn't want you to have to come back to the office to get it. So here it is. He then handed me back the pen, a black felt-tip pen that I had bought at a local drugstore. I said, Mr. President, thank you so much. It, it really wasn't, but I sure appreciate it. He smiled and said, well, all right. As Mark Weinberg said, I wish I had kept that pen. People are pointing to Russia and, uh, you know, saying, well, that's different. Or look at how strong. Reagan was a, a very strong anti-communist. I think it's, it's, I think for him, a defining moment was the Whitaker Chambers and and also all of the, the attempts of communists to infiltrate SAG that he had dealt with. They disagreed with the overall communist ideology. At the same time, he was supporting leaders that were in place uh, that were that were not democratic. He's down there meeting with the president of Guatemala. and Now, there's good or bad side of that. You can think of this as, a, as entirely bad. And I, and I do, in episode four, get into some of the disgusting results of this policy in Central America, where most Americans had decided by the midpoint of Reagan's presidency that there wasn't enough threat to justify anything, and certainly not an invasion of the country. There were also world powers against it. Margaret Thatcher, as much as she was anti-communist, would not tolerate an invasion of Nicaragua. She didn't like the invasion in Grenada. So the good side of dealing with these bad people, say, is that Reagan doesn't appear to be, we definitely see this with the Noriega example, someone who was interested in a grand-scale war. Surgical strikes, like he did in Libya, Grenada, yes, perhaps. Little shows of force, yes. When I talk about Reagan and Trump, I want to bring up a question that Chris Novembrino from uh, Don't Worry About the Government podcast asked me, which I, I did find interesting. He was like, you know, Bruce, I'm listening to this Reagan series. And I'm just thinking that if you can talk about Reagan so much and we're finding out things that maybe some people didn't know, it's different from the image. I wonder that in a couple of years you'll be doing Trump. And history's investigation, you can always, by asking questions, learn more. I'm not really sure that it means that it's always the case or that it would be the case here. I do think with Reagan there was a lot more below the surface that wasn't obvious uh, I don't think it's going to be the case with that. I think with with other presidents and other people that it's it's out there. And I think Trump is a person that puts it all out there. And so what do you do? You wait 20 years? Who knows? We didn't get to address it, but you have people like Bill O'Reilly or uh, Edmund Morris in his biography, Dutch, where he kind of assumed the role of a fictional character examining Reagan. These are two people who have made an assertion that Reagan's Alzheimer's started before he even left office. And that's so it's something that one must consider. In Bill O'Reilly's case, it was the suggestion that I don't believe that there was significant impairment during his presidency, during the time he was president. Look at Reykjavik. Okay, now that's 86, two years to go. 
Look at him and the way he's interacting with, with Gorbachev. I mean, how can one say, look at this discussion that he's having in the cabinet room about the Noriega issue. Um, you know, the mind was there. Um, there is people who have examined the diaries do note that they get a little less during the years. So by the second term, there's a little bit of less diary entries. His activities are down a bit, but he's also a president who's in his last couple of years. I think it's still a very active mind, an active president, knew what he wanted. It wasn't, I think, like the image of the time a senile old man was being directed by other people. That just wasn't the case. Did he have some senility? Yeah, perhaps. We're, by the way, getting into a period where we seem to like older presidents, right? I, you got Trump's there. People talk about Bernie Sanders. We're talking about Joe Biden. So I think it's something that, you know, will be a reality that we'll have to keep considering. Does a president's activities wane off a bit as they age? Sure. I think the whole Alzheimer's bit goes to people not wanting to believe that there, he was really in control. And then that sets up a whole bunch of arguments about what happened during his presidency, um, either if you agree. And I think sometimes it's the people who agreed with him, but want him to be stronger, say, on conservative policy to say, well, he was, you know, those country club people like Baker were in there controlling him. You know, so they're, they're just as likely to propel this myth than, than anyone. How was Reagan as a president? Well, I think you can't escape the fact that it's a model of a successful presidency. And you don't have to agree with the politics. I don't agree with all the politics. I, I didn't agree with all the politics then. I'm a person who likes people to have more health care. And that, that was never a significant priority for, for Reagan, for instance. I think it's one of these countries' greatest issues. And so here I'm doing a series on Reagan, and it really didn't go, didn't go into his toolkit at all. So there you have it. Um, that being said... I think he provides, more than anything, a model for how to do this right. You have to live in the country. You have to listen and understand that country. You have to like that country. Here's one sometimes for the left or the very ideological right. You have to like that country and the people who live in it, even those who don't disagree, who you disagree with. You have to believe that it can do great things or don't run for president. Thomas Reed, his friend, specific issues, health care and taxes, engage narrow bands of activists. But the determining factor in each citizen's vote is, is his or her confidence that the prospective leader understands their problems and then can use that understanding when crises erupt, as they certainly will in office. FDR, Eisenhower, Reagan, and Bill Clinton, Thomas Reed, a lifelong Republican, says, all demonstrated the ability to understand voters. Remote nominees like Adelaide Stevenson, Michael Dukakis, Bob Dole, and Mitt Romney did not. He wrote that uh, read before the 2016 election. I don't know who he supported. I don't know if either candidate in 2016, frankly, fulfilled what Reid puts out there. Uh, maybe Trump did more than Hillary to some. Uh, the lesson that I've learned that I think is important for future presidents 
is is not just to be the great communicator, but the great understander. And the great understander will prevail. That's the right lesson to learn from Reagan. Uh, the wrong lesson might be, you know, we need to go to war because we have to be tough. Um, the the right lesson, hope, America, understanding, acting as your own drummer, acting from strength. It's interesting. There was something I just read from Richard Rorty, the philosopher. I'm, I'm going to grab that. This gives you this idea from a left point of view. National pride is to countries what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary condition for self-improvement. Too much national pride can produce bellicosity and imperialism, just as excessive self-respect can produce arrogance. But just as too little self-respect makes it difficult for a person to display moral courage, so insufficient national pride makes energetic and effective debate about national policy unlikely. Emotional involvement with one's country, feelings of intense shame, or glowing pride aroused by various parts of its history and by various present-day national policies is necessary if political deliberation is to be imaginative and productive. Such deliberation would probably not occur unless pride outweighs shame. This from Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy's The President's Club. In December, after winning the presidential election in 1992, Bill Clinton's motorcade pulled up to the Century City skyscraper in Los Angeles, where Ronald Reagan had his post-presidential office. Clinton was spending a few days in town with friends and had sent word to Reagan, now 81 years old, that he wanted to stop by and chat. A meeting was quickly arranged. The two men were 35 years in a world apart in outlook, a gap nearly as great as the 43 years that had separated Herbert Hoover and John F. Kennedy when they met four decades before. The 70 minutes the two men spent in L.A. were historic. They talked about the need for a line-item veto and how to hold down spending. And Reagan offered Clinton two vital pieces of advice. First, he said, Get out of Washington every weekend and make thorough use of Camp David. That piece of advice was predictable. The other was not. Reagan indicated that he had watched Clinton on TV during the campaign, and notice, you didn't appear to have any idea how to execute a proper military greeting. As Commander-in-Chief Reagan suggested, Clinton would need to get a good, crisp, up-and-down slash of the hand to get the job done right. Until Reagan, U.S. presidents rarely, if ever, saluted men in uniform. Uniform personnel were required to salute the president, but not the other way around. Reagan learned how to salute both as a former Army cavalry officer and a former actor who played one in the movies. The trick was pacing, he told Clinton. Soldiers like to bring the hand up slowly as if it's dripping with honey and then shake it off briskly as if it were covered with something less pleasant. Clinton, never having served in uniform, was more than ready to hear Reagan's message. And so the 81-year-old Reagan proceeded to give the 46-year-old Clinton a private tutorial. The two men stood there in Reagan's L.A. office, 34 floors above Beverly Hills, 
perfecting their salutes. This is part 12. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.